You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Acts. Here's Nate. Well, as we turn to Acts chapter 14, we remember that we're in the middle of Paul and Barnabas's first missionary journey. So far in chapter 13, we have seen them sent out from the church in Antioch. They then went to the island of Cyprus and conducted ministry there before then leaving Cyprus and going to Antioch in Pisidia, or the region that we would think of or know as Galatia. And now we're going to see them go to another place in Galatia, a city called Iconium. So in chapter 14, verse 1, it says, Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Now Iconium and also Antioch in Pisidia were in the region of Galatia, as I mentioned. And Iconium was about 50 miles from the Antioch that they had just been in. So they go there and they begin preaching. So they remain, verse 3, for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Now it's interesting that the response to verse 2, that there were unbelieving Jews who stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers, elicited the response of verse 3, so they remained for a long time. In other words, in a worse situation, they remained. Jesus, of course, modeled this for us in at the very beginning of his ministry and then to the very end of his ministry. At the beginning of his ministry, rushing into the wilderness after being anointed with the Holy Spirit during the baptism of John, running to the wilderness for a period of temptation. He ran to the difficulty. And of course, at the end of his earthly ministry, at least, he rushed to the cross. He set his face like a flint toward it. And the spirit of Jesus is the same spirit that enabled Paul and his companions to remain in Iconium during a time of difficulty. And what they seem to be doing is simply what we might think of as follow-up with new believers. They knew that there were these new infant believers there in Iconium, and they saw that there were those trying to poison their minds, and so they knew they needed to stay and build up the faith of these brand new Christians. Now, God was blessing the work because he was granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. And so God was witnessing to, you know, his power upon Paul and his life. Now, the people of the city, it says in verse 4, were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some sided with the apostles. And that's what the word of God does. It is It will divide a group of people. Now, when an attempt, verse 5, was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, 
cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding regions, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now, this was a very difficult region, the Wild East, so to speak, so it's not surprising now that the resistance to the message gets physical, and they begin to mistreat Paul, and they are making an attempt to stone Paul and his companions. Now, here, when they learn of that, they actually do decide to leave. Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 23, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. So that's exactly what they did. They were receiving persecution in Iconium. They fled to the next towns of Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia. So they go to Lystra, this Roman colony, and there they continue to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, verse 8, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking attentively at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. So Luke describes this man in a dire way. He could not use his feet, and he could not use them from birth. Luke says he had never walked. So Luke, the physician, is very in tune with these healing moments, and he went back and apparently researched how ill was this man, and and how long had he had this disability. And so Paul is going to heal him. He looks intently at him. He saw that the man had faith to be made well, which is a fascinating statement. And he told him to stand upright. And he sprang up and began walking. Now, this is the third time a major disability is healed in the book of Acts. And it's very similar to the healing through Peter in Acts chapter 3, the man who had been lame for many years at the gate beautiful. So Paul now speaks and the man is raised. It is an impossible command that Paul gives to this man. Stand upright on your feet. Uh, Very similar to when Christ looked at the man with the withered hand and said, stretch out your hand. You know, the faith was there. That's what Paul could see, seeing he had the faith to be made well. The, The faith was there But now it was decision time. And this man made no excuses. He didn't say that he couldn't do it. But he instead began to rise and the power of Christ was present for him as he began to stand. And he sprang up and began walking. It was not Paul that had healed him. It was the Lord that had healed him. And I think so often as we look at our own lives, there is the faith, even at times dormant within to see God working and moving and establishing us, to giving to give us victory over various sins. But the Lord would look at us and say, okay, now get up, stand upright on your feet. I can do this through your life. And as we move, as we set the alarm clock and get up and spend that time with him in prayer, as we cry out to him, as we say yes to a new ministry venture, as we say yes, the power of Christ will rest upon us. Now, when the crowds, verse 11, saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. 
Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Now, Paul here uh, had exercised a gift of evangelism and knowledge and faith and healing. Uh, But the gift that they saw was not the evangelism or the knowledge, you have faith to be healed, or faith himself. What they saw was the gift of healing. They saw that and were amazed. And they began speaking in a language that Paul and Barnabas couldn't understand, the Lyconian language, that the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Now, this whole episode might have been connected to a a legend that had unfolded in Lystra years earlier about Zeus and Hermes visiting a Lystrian couple named Bacchus and Philemon. And in the legend, what it said was that they were rewarded for their hospitality of Zeus and Hermes by becoming permanent trees outside guarding Zeus's temple. So perhaps now, as the people see Paul work this miracle, they're thinking to themselves of that legend and thinking, we must be hospitable to these two because this has happened previously. And so they call Barnabas Zeus and Paul they call Hermes. And they called him Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And apparently that was more connected with the god Hermes. But when the apostles, Barnabas, verse 14, and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is is in them. Now, they showed their horror at what was happening by in an over-the-top kind of way, uh, shouting, tearing their clothes. This was a critical moment in the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. This was the danger uh, that was different from the danger that was found during severe persecution, but the danger of when the power of God is on your life. When God is rushing through you, when God is using you, that is a, a crucial moment. It's a moment where the enemy would love to puff you up with pride and and get you to begin feeling that, that you have arrived, that you indeed are a special human being. But they tore their clothes and said, that's not it at all. We are mere human beings just like you. The Bible says in James chapter 5, verse 17, that Elijah himself, the greatest of the prophets, was a man with a nature like ours. You know, just a, a simple man with a nature like ours. And he prayed that it wouldn't rain, and it did not rain for three years and six months. So if Elijah had a nature like ours, then what that tells us is that none of us should be puffed up with pride over who we are when God is using our lives. God is looking for humility perpetually. And so they just tell them, look, we're here to proclaim the good news to you. And so then they began to unfold that message. 
In past generations, verse 16, he allowed all the nations to walk in their ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Now, some consider Acts 16 to mean that God would not judge the nations who existed before the apostolic age. You know, because there in verse 15, he talks about turning from the vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. And that in past generations, he allowed all the nations, verse 16, to walk in their own ways. But we have to consider verse 17. In verse 17, he tells us, but God was still witnessing about himself. Even though they didn't have the Bible, they had some communication from God. He witnessed of himself through the rains and the seasons and food and gladness. The faithfulness of God was on full display throughout all of human history. Paul is going to expound on this idea in his Acts 17 message in Mars in uh, Athens on Mars Hill, the Areopagus message. What he's saying here is that there is much to learn of God in creation. There was no synagogue in Lystra, so Paul starts not in the synagogue with the scriptures, but in the creation, the open air, and the scriptures that they could have read in creation. In the rains and the seasons, he pointed out that God is faithful. With gladness, he pointed out that God makes and creates joy for people. And he did, of course, allow people to walk in their ways, but that was Paul's way of saying that he gave them up to the desires of their own hearts. He would expand on this idea in Romans chapter 1. He would say in Romans 1, verse 19 and 20, that what can be known about God is plain to the nations because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, Paul says, they are without excuse. In other words, humanity knows that there is a God. There, intuitively, it's not something that we've just simply received from our ancestors, but intuitively, within our own hearts, we understand that there's a divine being who must have formatted and created all of us, that there are these souls and emotions within us that are not the result of a simple evolutionary process, but have been breathed into us by a living God. And so Paul is telling them, look, you know that this God exists. And so he's trying to introduce them to the God of Scripture, but also simultaneously just simply stop them from offering sacrifices to him. And even with these words, verse 18, they scarcely restrain the people from offering those sacrifices. But the Jews, verse 19, came from Antioch and Iconium, And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Now, of course, this highlights for us the fickleness of the crowds. Fickle in the sense that there they were on one day ready to sacrifice 
to Paul and Barnabas, thinking that they were Hermes and Zeus. And now here in this next movement, after hearing from some of the Jews that had come from other parts of Galatia, Antioch and Iconium, here they want to kill them. They want to persecute them. And they beat Paul to the point that they thought that he was dead. They drag him outside of the city, uh, believing that he is a dead man. Now, Paul was either dead or unconscious, but either way, it was a miraculous recovery because he gets up and he goes right back into the city. Now, a question that we might have is to ask, is this where Paul received the vision of 2 Corinthians chapter 12? Uh, In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, in an attempt to defend his apostleship to the Corinthian believers, the Corinthian church, Paul told the story of a time in his life where he received a vision of heaven. And what he said in that passage is that he did not know whether it was in the body or out of the body. He did not know if you know, he had actually died and gone to see the Lord or whether it was just a vision that God had given to him. Uh, Personally, I think that it was at this moment that Paul received the 2 Corinthians 12 vision, but I'm not sure whether Paul, you know, actually died at this point or not. The language does seem to indicate some kind of at least severe beating and unconsciousness, if nothing short of actual death itself. But what this would have done to Paul's team. Imagine Timothy witnessing all of this, not yet part of Paul's team and eventually going to be recruited by Paul, but Timothy was from this place. And he would have seen the cost of service to God uh, in places like Derby and Lystra and Iconium. And so, you know, we must think about what Timothy would have endured just hearing about this event, seeing this event. But it seems that it was a meaningful moment in the life of Paul. He said in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty five, once I was stoned. So this was it. This was that moment in Paul's life. So he'd endured persecutions. He referred to these uh, when he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, his final letter. He said, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which I endured, yet from all of them, the Lord rescued me. So this was a significant moment of hardship in Paul's life. Now, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So they returned to these cities that had previously gone and evangelized for the process or purpose of making disciples. They went back. Uh, They could have gone a bit further to Tarsus on the other side of the Taurus Range, But they decided instead to go home. And as they went home, they were strengthening the souls of the disciples. You know, this dangerous return journey illustrates Paul's purpose of strengthening the churches that he left so quickly after he founded them. And they urged them to continue in the faith 
and they give them a dose of reality and tell them that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, of course, they were in the kingdom of God, but as we go through tribulations, we enter further into the kingdom of God and then ultimately the eschatological kingdom of God, the forever heaven of God. And so he's building up, Paul is, these future leaders, telling them things like 2 Timothy 3.12, that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And when, verse 23, they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believe. Now, this is fascinating because uh, Paul himself with his team, he goes about these various churches and cities and he takes the responsibility of appointing elders for them in every single church. They took the decision very seriously because they prayed and they fasted over each one of these decisions and committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. Now, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, we know that these elders were not novices. You know, they weren't just these brand new believers who didn't know anything. It's very possible that they were actually, even though they were newer believers, that they had been, that they were Jews who had been steeped in the scriptures who came out of Judaism. And they might have already been operating in an elder-like fashion in the Jewish synagogues and now as converts are able to easily transition into an elder-pastor role inside of these brand new churches. So Paul now is taking responsibility for appointing these pastor elders, these shepherds uh, in these brand new churches. Now, this honestly can be one of the most contentious elements of a church's life. Some kind of struggle over who is going to be the pastor or pastors in that local church. And is this a decision that the congregation will make, as in a congregational form of church government? Or will it be a decision that the eldership makes, as in an elder-run uh, church and fellowship? Will, will it be a decision that the outgoing lead or senior pastor makes? Uh, will it be a decision that the board of directors makes or that some authority from some other location makes in a more uh, liturgical setting with uh, different offices and branches of government overseeing the local congregations? But here, they had the advantage of not having to lean on any of those methods because they had the apostle himself doing the work. Now, it's interesting because when Paul wrote to Titus in Titus chapter 1, he told Titus that he actually left him on the island of Crete so that, verse 5 of chapter 1, you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So, apparently, it is not simply an apostolic work to appoint elders. And for that, we're very thankful because obviously we're no longer living in an age where apostles are walking around to make those kinds of decisions for us. This ability is given to the leadership within local churches. And Titus, as a disciple of Paul, had the ability to establish these new elders in every town to actually appoint them 
on Paul's behalf and to establish the organization of the church. And so again, Paul is interested not just in evangelism, but in organizing, structuring these brand new churches, giving them a strong chance at future success. Then, verse 24, they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attalia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. So eventually, Paul and Barnabas, it tells us here, go back home to Antioch. They got there by going back through Derby and Lystra and Iconium, but finally they get back to their home church. And it must have been such a joy-filled time to be able to come back. Uh, for one, just because it was a rigorous journey. It, it took them one to two years and we're not sure exactly how long because Luke used phrases like a long time or no little time throughout the previous two chapters. But the length of the travel is easy for us to, to determine. They went about 500 miles by sea and 700 miles by land and to these various towns and regions. It was an aggressive trip and a beautiful first missionary push into the Gentile world. And so they come home and they're rejoicing, reporting to the church saying, hey, this is what we did. Remember, you prayed for us. The Holy Spirit sent us out. And there's just this great joy as they declare that God had opened a door of faith to the Gentile world. In other words, the gospel had worked amongst the Gentile world. And it was a, it was a door of faith. It was a by faith message. And so God had opened the door. They rejoiced that God had opened that door. And then they hang out with the church in Antioch for a time. They remain there, verse 28, no little time with the disciples. God bless you. Amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.